Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. My dad's family originated in Germany, but left in the early 1700s due to a harsh winter, where apparently it got so cold that at one point frozen birds were falling from the sky and the English Channel froze over. Like many Germans during this time, they migrated to England at the invitation of Queen Anne, but soon the British began to regret this invitation and made promises of great opportunities in the New World. So the Walburns left Europe and arrived in New York, and according to my Uncle Mose, were quickly kicked out because one of them beat up the governor's son. They eventually settled in Ohio and became glassmakers. When magic sand was discovered in the creeks of Tallapoosa, Alabama, a glass factory was opened up there, and my great-grandfather relocated. Eventually, the family moved an hour and a half east to the town of LaGrange, Georgia. And as a kid, through frequent visits and stories from relatives, LaGrange became this magical place inhabited with larger-than-life characters, both past and present. There was George Walburn, who was a fiddler and actually recorded for OK in Columbia in the 20s and 30s, but whose greatest claim to fame, according to family, was his ability to play the fiddle while crossing his legs and stomping his feet at the same time. There's also the story of the disillusion of my great-grandparents' marriage, with my great-grandfather moving out and moving into the barn behind the house where he would spend the remainder of his life. But by far, my favorite character from LaGrange was my beloved paternal grandmother, who I called Nanny. My nanny was quite the woman. Warm and stubborn, tough and fiercely independent, She often would tell me to never take shit from anyone, and if anyone ever messed with me, to let her know. She loved her family and friends with an intense devotion. In the early 80s, a serial rapist was committing a string of break-ins and rapes in LaGrange. Late one evening, my nanny's neighbor called her frantic for help because the rapist was breaking into her home. My nanny, who was in her mid-60s at this point, quickly ran across the street and chased this man barefooted down the road until the police were able to capture him. When the officer spoke with my nanny, they said, Mrs. Walburn, you can't ever do something like that again. To which she replied, Well, the son of a bitch made me mad. Like I said, she was quite a woman. Spending time with her, hearing these stories and anecdotes, eating her wonderful cooking, It made me feel connected to a certain culture that I didn't necessarily feel all that close to while growing up in suburbia. And I really don't think I fully understood its value until many years later, after taking a course in folklore at Georgia State. It was in this class that my mind was regularly blown, being exposed for the first time to stuff like sacred harp singing, Elizabeth Cotton, face jugs, and St. Eom. This course was taught by the great John Burrison, a real-deal folklorist who has devoted much of his career to the study of material culture and has been noted for his efforts to preserve and champion the Georgia folk pottery tradition. Now, another important credit of Dr. Burrison, and one for which the indie folk scene has greatly benefited, and let's be honest, we're all the better for it, 
is that he introduced to one another the parents of guitarist and singer Jake Xerces Fussell. I first became familiar with Fussell's music while working on a radio show for my local station in Noonan called the Sound and Fury Radio Hour, which showcased Southern music. I was instantly enamored with his musicianship, but also appreciated his approach, presenting folk music the way God intended, not as some character from the Grapes of Wrath, but rather as his own authentic self. So I decided to dive in. I put on his 2017 record, What in the Natural World, and I listened. This is the story of that record. My name is Jake Xerxes Fussell, and I made an album called What in the Natural World. collection of largely traditional songs, though not all of them. Um, I didn't write any of them, but I arranged most of them with uh, a group of my musician friends here in Durham, North Carolina, where I live. Jake Xerxes Fussell grew up in the town of Columbus, Georgia, and it is through his parents that he is exposed to art and folk culture at an early age. My parents were both involved in uh, art and in, I guess in folklore as well. My dad is a folklorist and my mother is a high school teacher, but um, uh, they both were involved in art and both uh, art enthusiasts as well as being artists. Actually, my dad's always painted the whole time I was growing up and my mom's a quilter. But yeah, I grew up, I guess, in an artistic uh environment my dad in addition to being a folklorist um until i was like in fifth grade or so he was the curator of the local art museum and yeah my parents were friends with several other people in the state and in the region who did folklore work as well including this guy named george mitchell and his wife kathy mitchell they had done a lot of documentation of um rural blues musicians in the South beginning in the 60s. And um, we're still doing that when I was a kid growing up in the 80s. And there's another couple, Art and Margot Rosenbaum, who um, still live in Athens, Georgia. And they had moved from um, the Midwest in the 70s in the mid-70s, I think, and they had also done a lot of uh, field recordings of traditional music in the area. Anyway, my um, parents were good friends with both those couples, and they were sort of uh, part of a collective in the 70s and 80s that were doing all this um, documentation of traditional music in the area. So I kind of grew up in that environment in some ways. Um my dad's specialty as a folklorist was more in the material culture 
world. He um, knows a lot about pottery making and uh, sort of uh, traditional craft ways, I guess, like basket making and stuff like that and building log houses. And they kind of came out of, uh, both my parents came out of an interest in that stuff. And um, so, yeah, I kind of, I kind of, my sister and I and my brothers, we grew up in a household that was um, full of all kinds of art and people who are art enthusiasts and folklorists and stuff like that coming over all the time. So it was an interesting world. Due in part to the artistic environment in which he was raised, Fussell's interest in music begins early. Like anybody else, I was interested in music as a kid just because like, I liked watching MTV and listening to the Casey Kasem radio or whatever, you know, like the top 40. Like, a, in some ways, my musical interests weren't atypical. And when I was a little kid, like, I started playing drums probably when I was like five or six or something like that. And, you know, I liked music a lot the whole time I was growing up. But then um, I also had this uh, access to this sort of other world because of my parents' work. So, you know, I grew up knowing Precious Bryant really well. She's a blues woman from Tobleton, Georgia. My parents would drive her around. She didn't drive, so they would take her to festivals and gigs and stuff. And so I grew up knowing her really well and seeing her play a lot. And then other people too, Albert Macon and Robert Thomas, who George Mitchell, that guy I mentioned earlier, had recorded in the early 80s. They were like a blues duo from Macon County, Alabama, near Tuskegee. Um, other people too, some old-time country musicians and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, my dad put on this festival every year in Columbus when I was a kid, the Chattahoochee Folk Life Festival, which happened in downtown Columbus on the river. And all these people would play music that was like early fall every year. And that was a really fun time. And so when I got older and like music became more serious or something, especially when you get to be like pubescent i think you know things take like a more serious turn or something when you, your hobbies or at least for me it did it was like i immediately realized that i had like access to this world um and that collided with my um interest in records too so like at the same time that i knew about like precious bryant you know, I'd hear her play some song, and then around that same time, I was, like, discovering pre-war recordings um, that were being reissued that had been on 78s, like, in, you know, the 20s and 30s. And I'd be like, oh, that's that's that, that blind boy Fuller. is like, that's the same guy this was just talking about. <laughs> and I was, like, putting those two worlds together at the same time and then um, seeing, you know, how all the pieces fit. Eventually... Fussell's interest in music would lead to him learning to play the guitar. 
we had instruments around the house the whole time I was growing up. There was always a good, like an acoustic guitar hanging on the wall, like a cheap one that my dad kept around. Uh, but nobody in my household really played instruments like, like seriously or anything. They had friends who played music and a couple of my uncles were into music and stuff like that, but instruments were around. And then when I was like, I guess 11, something like that. That's when I started messing with stringed instruments and learning chords, teaching myself chords. In fact, I mean, I do remember this specifically was I was trying to learn chords on a guitar and I was finding it to be difficult. You know, always is when you're starting out and your fingers hurt and stuff like that. And I remember telling Precious that I was learning or trying to learn some chords. And she told me that if you had a ukulele, which she called a ukulele, um, she said, if you just get a little ukulele and learn the chords on that first, and then you can translate that to guitar later, which is what I did. And it made things much simpler. So that was like a really good piece of advice early on. <laughs> when I was like 12, 13, there was this guy, Billy Wynn, who's a good friend of my parents, who's like a, worked at the local who's an editor of the local newspaper in columbus and he was like one of these guys or is one of these guys who was like uh involved in the folk revival and stuff like that like not in the he wasn't a well-known performer ever or anything he kind of just played at home but he was um knew how to finger pick and all that and so we would get together every week and he would show me things um and that was as close as i had to any kind of formal teacher ever like and he wasn't all that formal <laughs> but he you know he would do cowboy songs and like woody guthrie or um you know some blues finger picking type things so i had access to that at the same time that uh knew precious and when i got to be older like in high school that i could drive and stuff i would go out to precious's place and play with her but you know, it was more like she would just play and I would try to catch whatever she was doing and she didn't really ever stop and show me anything. Although she probably would have had I asked her. I think it was just shy. <laughs> Fussell would eventually leave Georgia and live in various cities in the U.S. It is while living in California that he begins performing live as a solo artist. You know, when I graduated in high school in Columbus, I went to Columbus State for like a year and a half or something and then I basically dropped out like I mean I liked school actually loved it there and everything but I at the time um was dating a girl in California and then moved out there for a while and played music just was working like in a photography gallery in San Francisco and generally being broke <laughs> because it's expensive out there uh, but one of the things I did out there was I had a part-time clerk job at um, Down Home Records, which is a record store for Arhuli Records. It's a great record label um, in El Cerrito, California. So I got to be around a lot of people who knew a lot about traditional music. I was always following that, you know. And um, the filmmaker Les Blank, who made all these great documentary films about Lightning Hopkins and Clifton Chenier. Yeah, and so I got to know him really well, and his um, office was the upstairs of Down Home Records, so got to hang out with him a lot. And I was sort of um, playing music and 
kind of hanging out and soaking it all up and uh and working in the store as a clerk and getting to like find out about all that music that i could our hooli had been like one of my favorite record labels in the world and still is really but while i was out there i was playing gigs and there was at that time there was like a little folky like a freak folky scene i guess in san francisco like there was this woman jolly holland was playing a lot Mm -hmm. um and this guy named sean hayes and there's a group of people that um, were sort of interested in traditional music, but also songwriters. Um, and so I got to hang out with a lot of those people and Jolie would like have me open for her and stuff like that. And that was long before I ever made a record or anything like that. Um, but I was um, definitely playing out a good bit then. And then I moved to Mississippi in 2005 my sister had um gone to school at Ole Miss and I'd hung out in Oxford some and I liked it there and um I was ready to leave the west coast and not be so broke uh, (laughs) or so stressed about rent and rent in Mississippi as you imagine was pretty low at that time so yeah I moved there and then I um was working part-time doing folklore work actually in North Alabama in the Muscle Shoals area. They were doing like a folk life survey in that part of the state. And at the same time was just playing around town in Oxford um, in bars and stuff like that. It is while living in Mississippi that Fussell would make some key connections that would ultimately lead to the release of his first record. When I was living in Oxford, you know, there's this weekly radio show there that Square Books, um, the the bookstore, the great old independent bookstore there, does this show every week on Mississippi Public Radio called Thacker Mountain Radio. And the house band there for a long time had been uh, my friend Wallace playing drums and then this guy Duff Durrow, who was like a great Delta sort of rockabilly guy. And... Um, I say rockabilly, but actually played a lot more stuff than that. But great guitar player and singer. And Jim Dickinson, uh, producer and great piano player from Memphis. Mm-hmm. And they had been the house band. And then I used to sit in with them some, and they liked me because I played like tr- old traditional songs, which is what they like to play. And, um, and then Duff wound up getting really sick and eventually passing away, and they need somebody to replace him. And so I went up getting this gig as like the house band leader and did that for three years, like every week playing on this live radio show. So that became a good way to like cultivate a lot of material and try out things in front of an audience. Um, in addition to playing like other just bar gigs around and also playing as a side man for other people at the same time. Um, so that was kind of all happening in Mississippi. And around that time, William Tyler was spending time in town because um, he had family from Mississippi. Like both his parents had gone to Ole Miss like back in the 60s or something, or at least I know his dad did. And he was kind of hanging around town a little bit. And I think he was sort of flirting with the idea of moving to Oxford for a while there. Around that same time, I was like talking sort of communicating with Paradise of Bachelors. They were 
I'd sent them some music randomly because I was actually talking to them about working on this project that had nothing to do with my music at the time. It's a thing that never came together, but they wanted to do a, um, an anthology of American Indian recordings. (laughs) And I had written my, um, I was at the time writing my thesis about, um, the Choctaw fiddle tradition. And so they were, they were kind of aware of me through this mutual friend, Jeff Curry, who's like a, Lumbee Indian scholar and folklorist and um, anyway there's sort of a bunch of different worlds coming together at the same time really but I'd sent them some of my own recordings and they were enthusiastic about those and said like hey do you have more and then I sent them more they were just like demos um, or just like home recordings really they weren't even demo like real demos but they um were interested in putting a record out on me but they didn't really know me you know and they were like well why don't you work with our friend William which is like funny enough because I just met him he was hanging around Oxford oh it's hippity hop to the bucket shop I lost all my money and now I have flopped and it's hard times what a pity poor boy it's hard times when he down and out all this is the truth and it certainly exposes wall street proposition and what all roses it's hard times what a pity poor boy it's Yeah, so the first record kind of came together with William and I just sort of getting to know each other and hanging out in Oxford a bunch. You know, basically him just saying, like, what do you want to what do? You wanna do? <laughs> and then I played him some of the songs that I was interested in recording, and I think he and I saw eye to eye and, like, you know, that this didn't necessarily have to be, like, um, any kind of, like, string band revival record. I think he knew that that wasn't what I was aiming for, and... Um, and then uh, we recorded out at um, Bruce Watson's studio in Water Valley, Mississippi, which is a great studio. It's now run by Matt Patton, who's in Drive-By Truckers. But um, then we went to Nashville after that and did overdubs with all these like Nashville session guys who William had known. Um so Chris Scruggs played on that record and Hoot Hester, who's like this great uh, Nashville fiddler um, and Brian Kotzer from Silver Jews. And yeah, so that was like a really fun record to make. After relocating to Durham, North Carolina, Fussell begins planning his next record, as well as collaborating with local musicians. Initially, sessions for the record were to be held in New York. But after arriving and recording for a few days, Tracking was suddenly brought to a halt. That's kind of a funny story. Um, yeah, so I remember I'd done this first record, and then uh, Brendan Greaves, who runs Paradise of Bachelors, when I'd signed with Paradise of Bachelors initially, I was under a two-record contract anyway, and so I knew I had to make another one with them. They encouraged me to work with Nathan Bowles. Nathan moved to... Um, Durham 
not long after uh, I had moved here. And I was aware of his music. I liked his records. He also had uh, solo records on Paradise of Bachelors, these great um, like ambient sort of banjo, droney, really interesting instrumental records. And then he and I got to be friends just like in the same sort of social circle. We had a lot of mutual friends and all that. And then had also been playing music together a little bit, um, just informally, like kind of jamming a little bit uh, with this guy, Casey Toll, who's a bass player in town. He had played in Mount Moriah. Um, Nathan and Paradise of Bachelors had worked a lot with this guy, Jason Marr, who runs a studio in um, in New York State, um, which I can't say it's upstate. It's like, uh, I think it's Western New York State. I don't know what, it's like this sort of really flat area. It's not like in the Catskills or anything, but um, sort of farmland area. But he runs this studio called Black Dirt. And Steve Gunn had made records with him. Uh, I think his past like two or three albums had been made in that studio. And so anyway, the plan basically was like for me to go up there with Nathan and we just lay down like basic tracks of just guitar, vocal and drums. Um, Nathan's a great drummer in addition to being a banjo player and then figure out what we we're going to do with overdubs after that that was sort of the basic idea and so we drove up to new york and did like three or four days worth of tracking and it was great like jason was really fun to work with he's a really brilliant engineer um but like on the fourth day or something like that his system totally crashed and lost like more than half of what we recorded <laughs> So it was kind of this crazy uh, thing that happened. And I think for a lot of artists would be like a nightmare. And for a second there, it kind of felt like it was a nightmare, but he, Jason was freaking out way more than I was, which kind of made me f almost just feel more for him and not really like, cause you know, as a musician, like it is, it sucks to lose things like that. But at the same time, you're like, I can I knew I could do it again or maybe even do it better. Like it wasn't totally uh, traumatic for me or anything, but I think Jason was just like, what is going on? He didn't know what was happening at the time. Like it was a weird thing where he doesn't use pro tools. He uses like this other funny system that is digital, but it works more like an analog system and that you don't have like recall or something. It's this very specialized um platform that he uses i don't i can't remember the name of it but like basically he was like looking at the screen and it was like melting into hieroglyphics <laughs> and a total nightmare for an engineer and he was just like i don't know what to do i'm sorry uh so we wound up just like driving home and we were like well we'll see what he salvaged on the hard drive out of you know we'll just have to like regroup and figure this out and I guess a couple of weeks went by and um, there were a couple of things that were salvaged, but otherwise like the record was gone pretty much. Um, and we, you know, we were probably at that point had been like 80% done with the basic tracking, if not more, you know? 
so it was kind of a bummer but then it wound up being kind of a weird blessing in disguise i guess because it gave me more time to work on the record and just to sort of regroup after reassessing the situation the decision is made to stay in north carolina to complete the record we wound up coming back to durham and just being like wow that was weird (laughs) and sort of reassessing and it was like oh there's other studios around here that we could look at and around that time i met uh, Nick Peterson, who I'd met a couple of times before he'd run sound around town. And I knew that he had like a studio a recording studio out at his house, which was like a really beautiful space um, sort of between Durham and Hillsborough, like in a really pretty part of um, the countryside on this lake. And anyway, drove out there and was like met with him about this whole thing and what wound up being great about that is that i mean for in that point in time is that his setup um in terms of like mics and the way that he approaches a recording was very similar to what jason marr was doing you know we had like a few tracks that were salvaged from the first session at black dirt and like it wound up being a thing where it was like, oh, actually, this won't be weird. This actually has continuity, and this will work. <laughs> you know, if we try to use some of this stuff that we still have, uh, it won't sound like a whole other record or whatever. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we just sort of started recording again, and then um, I really liked working out at Nick's place. And so, yeah, it was me and Nathan Bowles, and we brought in Casey Toll, that bass player that we'd been playing with to play upright bass on everything. And also Nathan Golub, who is uh, this um, pedal steel guitarist um, who I had known a little bit around town because he had opened for me a couple of times, like in Raleigh one time he'd opened for me. And he was just like a guy around town mm-hmm. who sits in with a lot of country bands and just like a really versatile um, pedal steel guitarist who plays like, he also does like his own sort of, ambient guitar instrumental stuff um that he just self-releases which is really gorgeous um and so i just i liked him and then i knew i wanted to pedal steel on the record because it's like a sound that i wanted to be in there and then so that's kind of how it all came together and that wound up being good like it was all just like local people played on the record um and then I had um, my friend Nathan Salzberg and Joan Shelley in Louisville, Kentucky do a couple of things on the on the record as well. And in the end, he made a record. Well, 
land of cotton, cotton, Lyle is out of style. Honey child, jump for joy. And don't you grieve, little leave. All the hounds I do believe have been killed. Ain't you thrilled? Jump for joy. Have you seen pastures groovy? Well, green pastures was just a technicolor movie. And when you stomp up to heaven and you meet old St. Pete, tell that boy, jump for joy. Step right in, give Pete some skin and jump for joy. What in the Natural World opens with the track Jump for Joy. Originally written and performed by the 20th century composer and bandleader Duke Ellington, the opening track is folk music in its purest sense. It is the belief that there is no definitive version and that a song is a living matter with the ability to change and exist in various forms. Through his talent as an interpreter and arranger, Fussell is able to make Jump for Joy truly his own which is really a great example of what makes this entire record so special that song jump for joy i had been playing that for about a year before i recorded it i had a compilation cd i think of some of duke ellington's early work um i'm not the biggest um expert on Duke Ellington's recordings. I mean, of course, he had a really long career. But I remember talking to my friend, Ben Child, who's like a... He and I were in classes together at Ole Miss. But he was just a guy that I got to be friends with in Oxford, Mississippi. And he had... I think he gave me a CD of Duke Ellington's... We were talking about composers who had used traditional music and had played with it in interesting ways. And he was encouraging me to get into Duke Ellington. I'd always kind of, I mean, I knew that Duke Ellington was a really important and prolific figure, you know, but um, I'd kind of think always tossed him off as like a swing era guy or yeah. something. And then um, he had um, told me, you know, you should actually pay attention to this stuff. <laughs> and so then I started getting into it and I realized like it's extraordinary, like you know, Duke Ellington's, especially from that era, like uh, mid thirties to early forties, he did some really incredible stuff. And a lot of it's real, like dreamlike or something. It's like got this real, I don't know, uh, like shimmery quality or something. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. And the songwriting is really interesting and, um, and that song was the title track from this musical that he'd put on and premiered in LA and it was like an all black cast and it was all about uh, race in America and a very interesting song. I just started playing it around and I didn't really intend on recording it. Actually, like I had like all these, I played it and people seemed to respond to it well and I um, I played it in my own like very naive, dumbed down, uh, folky kind of country way. Like when you hear his band version that he recorded back in '39 or whatever it is, or early '40s. I can't remember what year. I think 1941. I'm looking on the record right now. Um, it's like this really 
sort of ornate arrangement mm-hmm. as a lot of his arrangements are. And my version is like a complete like bonehead version of it. You know, it's very like countryfied and all that. Um, but there was something about it that, that kind of worked. Like a, there was like a somberness to it or something. And uh, yeah, and then I, I decided, well, let's, we could try it. And then I got Nathan Bowles to play piano on it. And it just really worked. And I thought, well, that actually would be like an interesting way to start the record. There was something about it that was kind of like somber, but like stately at the same time. And, you know, since then, I rarely play a show where I don't play that song. On this record, I think all of the electric stuff that I play, I'm pretty sure it was just my Telecaster. That guitar had belonged to this guy, uh, J.D. Mark, who was a musician in Oxford, Mississippi, who I'd played with um, for a number of years. Um, he and I had played like country music together and stuff. And he was, he was originally from Michigan a couple of years before I left Oxford. Um, he had uh, tragically passed away. Basically he had a bunch of guitars and his family got in touch with some of his close musician friends. And they had asked us like, if you want a guitar of gems, just pick one out, which was you know extremely generous. And so I, I wound up getting that Telecaster from that. And I've been playing it ever since. So yeah, I can I can thank JD Mark for that. I'd loved his playing on it. He was a great like he played a lot of country music and rockabilly. He'd have been in an R and B band for a long time and I'd always admired his telecaster work and he was definitely more of like a telecaster type dude, you know. He mm-hmm. did all that stuff on the bridge pickup with all that high end telecaster stuff that telecasters are are known for and then as soon as i got it i was i kind of like thought like oh maybe maybe i'll just keep this and remember him and not really play it that much because i don't really i never thought of myself as like a telecaster person but it's funny you know as soon as i got that telecaster i was like actually what i'm doing kind of works in a weird way i almost always keep the pickup on the the neck pickup, you know, the bassier tone. And I just, it never would have occurred to me that that would have worked, but that instrument has like a real clarity and a, and a bite that I really like. And it, to me, I wasn't aware of how um, bassy and, and full a Telecaster could sound. And it's funny because since then I've like played Stratocasters and other guitars and I don't like them. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just like you get used to, your thing you know and i played mainly acoustic guitar um when i was performing solo before i had that telecaster and then i sort of shifted to that and it wound up being like kind of eye-opening um as to what i could what i could do with it See 
seen peaches growing on a sweet potato vine as a repetitive and hypnotic number and one of the many highlights of what in the natural world. On display are Fussell's impressive guitar skills as well as his exuberant vocal performance but what really makes this track shine is the dynamic interplay between the song's musicians. She's a married woman, but I love her just the Field recording of this guy, Jimmy Lee Williams, from Poulon, Georgia, which I think is down there, like in Houston County, like that area. And he was one of these guys that George Mitchell, that uh, photographer and blues documentarian from Atlanta, had recorded in the early 80s, put out this LP called Rock On Away From Here. All those uh, George Mitchell recordings were reissued in a box set by Fat Possum a number of years ago. But um, I knew a lot of those people that George had recorded. I never met or saw Jimmy Lee Williams, but I always loved that record um, for whatever reason. I don't think he played beyond his community too much. But yeah, that, I just loved that song. And that was one that like, I remember Nathan Bowles and I were recording that. And I was just kind of playing. It was almost like a toss off song. It was one that I'd played live a few times and it had like this sort of fun kind of quality you know you can play with the guitar part or whatever but it wasn't one that you know th- that is one thing about making records like you're always like you go in with like songs that you think of as being real substantial you know because they have like either a narrative quality or something that like as a song very much like a real form that you can hold on to i don't know there's like a, there's songs that definitely have like this is a song beginning, middle, end, you know, and there's other ones like that that are just like a very loose blues form or something. And you're like, oh, this is kind of watery and fluid and it might not come across that good. But then like once you play it in the studio, sometimes it leads to a bigger thing than you realize. And you realize like, oh, this is a really nice sound. Yeah. And it's funny. I didn't, I didn't really start off 
um you know i didn't think it was going to be one of the like signature songs that i play or whatever and now i I play it just about every show and people request it a lot and all that the other thing i remember actually like thinking about the guitar tone on this record i'd forgotten this and it just just occurred to me is that um I remember giving Jason or Nick or maybe both of them sent them a bunch of recordings where I was looking for a specific guitar tone. And I know that one of the things that I sent them was um, this record by singer and guitar player named Keith Sakola. He's an American Indian singer songwriter. And he made this record called Circle that I want to say came out like in the late 80s or early 90s. And his guitar tone on that record is really great. It's like this sort of phasey electric guitar. And particularly this one song he has called Akina that I really love. Akina means all. Um, and I remember sending them that. And there's also like a Magic Sam record that I really liked. And I remember sending them that. Um, there's a track called Give Me More Time that I know that I was like, oh, can we get this? <laughs> um, so I think they were like, you know, when they were recording and kind of shooting for that, um, which it doesn't sound exactly like it, but I like making use of a little bit of, I think there could be some phasey stuff. Like I don't, I don't, I don't use any pedals like when I play live or anything. I don't own any pedals, but um, I think that we might have used something um to give it a little bit of like a phasey sound on that one yeah i think about that when i hear that guitar tone on this record i remember like oh yeah it's just funny like there are certain things that are like you try to give uh an engineer to be like can we is there a way we can recreate this and then and then they do their attempt at that and it winds up sounding like uh, no fault of theirs it's probably just more on my end like not knowing how to play that way and then like it doesn't sound anything like it but you wind up like working with what you have and then that becomes its own interesting third thing <laughs> Silver in the Pinnacle Mountain, nuggets found in the river below. From a cave back up in the mountain, one man had the fortune to know. And though many have searched this mountain, her secret is hidden in the ground. Lives were risked and crops were abandoned, but the silver hadn't yet been found. It's a rocky old mountain I'm a-climbing There's a raging river below Through the valley so beautiful and winding And it's secret 
Pinnacle Mountain Silver Mine is a song that greatly exemplifies the power of subtlety. The track features guitarist Nathan Salzberg, who delicately weaves his acoustic guitar around Fussell's melodic finger-picked electric, and then adding to the already smart arrangement are beautifully understated textures of pedal steel guitar. And that really speaks more to Nathan Gollum than it does to me, honestly. He came in, and that was like always his approach. He, he played on my more recent record, too, and he's just so great at just like, he sort of hears a song. I love the way he hears songs differently than the way I do. Like, I, you know, I hear a song, and I think, like, oh, you come in in this moment, and you play in this part, and he'll just like sit there quietly and not play for like a full half minute or a full two minutes sometimes. And then he'll come in like at a certain part, and you're just like, oh, why, how did you think of that? Like, <laughs> uh that's really his approach and he's he's pretty great at that so yeah that's that's all him that song came from um this great uh compilation or really a bigger anthology that's like 10 lps it's also in cd format uh called virginia traditions which I think Blue Ridge Music Institute at Ferrum College in Virginia put out like in the early or mid 80s. I mean, I would love to see that reissued. I don't know. It would probably be a huge job to do that because there's so many different types of recordings on that thing. It sort of spans like early field recordings, but also like commercial pre-war recordings and also later field recordings. But um, it's just a collection of traditional music from the state of Virginia and each uh, LP has like a different historical theme. It's just like an amazing work and they're really great uh, liner notes by this guy Kip Lornell, who's a musicologist in Virginia. But anyway, one of the records in that set is called Native Virginia Ballads and there's that recording of Helen Cockrum and the Highlanders, which I think were like a bluegrass group from the Galax area, or maybe around Hillsville, that, that part of Southwest Virginia, doing the song Pinnacle Mountain Silver Mine, which I'd never heard elsewhere. And I'd known about that recording for several years, um, and I just loved it. And I, I had sung that song a little bit out and about, and... Um, uh Daniel Bachman, who's a, a buddy of mine, he and I had done some gigs together and I'd played that song a few times at gigs where I'd played with him and he was really encouraging me to re record that. Um, so that's what I like doing. Has the poor man got Dealing with the furniture man Well he's got no dough And it will stand to show 
And I expect the wagon's gonna stand This piano and everything Mr. Cooper had it written under my name So take your time, Mr. Brown Take your time Following Pinnacle Mountain Silvermine is the acoustic number, Furniture Man, which once again features Nathan Golub providing sorrowful pedal steel that nicely complements the song's melancholic narrative about furniture repossession. That song, started playing that like a long time ago, maybe when I was 19 years old or something. There's a couple of different variants. There's um, this song called Cocaine that was recorded by a guy named Luke Jordan back in the 20s, which was really like a funny song. I think it was like a medicine show type song or like a minstrel theater song. And then sort of comical, but also sort of tragic at the same time. And then there's a few different songs about um, furniture men and like repossession in the string band idiom that were recorded throughout the 20s and 30s this other guy um dick justice who's a finger picker from west virginia had recorded another version of that same cocaine song which had this verse in it about the furniture man and then and then this furniture man song the version that i really drew from was this guy named lil mcclintock who was from south carolina all these were like pre-war um musicians in the 78 recording era commercial recording era um and yeah i'd played a, a version of that for years like on my acoustic guitar and stuff just playing out and about and it was always such an unusual song but it did my version of it always like kind of evolved like it always it was like never real stasis like it always kind of changed around and then at some point i put that little like clipped like riff on it that descending like that little thing that became a part of it at some point i don't know when
sour mood furniture man, Miss Fussell's amiable take on the folk classic Bells of Remney. Originally adapted by Pete Seeger from a poem by Welsh poet Idris Davies, the song famously appears on the Bird's debut album, Mr. Tambourine Man, and sounds absolutely nothing like Fussell's version. I don't think I heard the Bird's version until after I recorded my version. I knew the version that they were basing it off of, the new Pete Seeger's version. Um, and of course, you know, they based a lot of their stuff off of Pete Seeger. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I was not aware of that recording, but I did love that song. I mean, there's a lot of mixed feelings out there about Pete Seeger. Some people really hate him because yeah. I think to a lot of people he represents... Even though I think this is wrong-headed, he sort of represents something like really puritanical about the folk revival, and he sort of, well, for a lot of people, like becomes this straw man or something for like this the squareness of the folkies of the urban folkies. He's undeniably an important figure in, in that whole scene, but I can understand too like the pushback because some of his stuff is like, I mean, he made so many records. Um, he was such a prolific recording artist and and for a while they're sort of a star which is interesting and in, in addition to being a promoter and an interpreter and sort of in some ways like an intellectual of the scene a lot of his uh, recordings come across as not the most soulful thing in the world like he kind of for a lot of people i think um those recordings can be a little bit like uh, milk toasty or something but that particular recording uh, i mean there's a few recordings out there a few versions but they're all pretty similar of him playing bells of Rimney is so beautiful um and i loved it like i was just like oh man if, if all of pete Seeger's music was like this <laughs> i would be a huge pete Seeger fan and it's funny because i was thinking about uh just playing like when i would play out like almost just doing the, the way that he does it you know but then I was also playing the Telecaster, messing around a lot with like gospel uh, guitar, which I had, you know, gotten into a little bit initially, having played with Precious Bryant back in the day, because she knew all these gospel guitar riffs from having played with her in a like group, family group with her sisters. And I always was interested in that because it wasn't it was sort of like the blues finger picking, but actually there was like more bar chords involved and more like minor chords and you know, the changes were different. And then later when I played with Reverend John Wilkins, this gospel guy from Memphis, when I lived in Mississippi, uh, I had to like incorporate a lot of that stuff playing guitar behind him. got me just more interested in trying to um, increase my gospel guitar knowledge. And so listening to a lot of like Dixie Hummingbirds and they had this guy in the group named Howard Carroll, who was like just extraordinary guitar player. If you listen to those old recordings and playing electric guitar behind, you know, gospel harmonies and stuff. And, uh, I was listening to a lot of that and didn't necessarily want to do like a straight gospel song, you know, but then at some point, I mean, this didn't come together 
as part of the record making per se like I, you know this came together like playing live just adapting those lyrics to this uh gospel melody with gospel changes and a gospel guitar approach and around that time playing a lot with nathan bowles who was playing just drums behind me we would do like duo sets around town here like at this place the nightlight in chapel hill and um playing that just as like trying it out and then it so just became a part of the record really from, from doing that With its somewhat illogical lyrics accompanied by an intimate arrangement, the strange Billy Button accomplishes the seemingly difficult task of evoking both an undercurrent of sadness and absurdity. Hog meat, I got plenty. Sheep meat's too good for the fella. Ram, lamb, sheep, mutton, good enough for Billy Button, and the other living glutton. Walk in, Joe, I'll be your friend. It's a long way to travel and the money for to spend. Walking, talking, ginger, blue, good, double, double trouble. I'm bound for the happy land of Canaan. an unusual song that's one that i learned from art rosenbaum he'd actually learned it from this woman mary ruth moore who i think teaches in the art department at ega i think she's like a photography professor but she had learned it i think from her father and she's not like a you know a a well-known singer or anything she just knows that art is interested in old songs and stuff and she happened to say offhand at some point like i have an i know an unusual song and uh i think she learned that from her father who i think probably had some childhood memory of it or something so a lot of times these songs you know they're like they come to you sort of in fragments because they've been you know verses are forgotten or whatever or they're like mistranslated from older recordings or something or they're misheard from <laughs> so it was just like this unusual little f- song fragment really and, I, and he had recorded her singing that and had played it for me at some point and i thought it was so interesting uh, and this is sort of like nonsensical lyrics walking talking ginger blue good over double trouble i'm bound for the happy land of canaan and i had played that I'd sort of worked up my own version of it that I played around town a while when I lived in Mississippi and people were always like, what the hell is that song? Uh, So yeah, it's interesting. And that song has like its origins part, at least partially in the, the sort of minstrelsy stuff. There's actually a really weird version of it. Uh, or a related song that was recorded by Arthur Tanner a part of like the whole skillet liquors world of um, 
Georgia string band, that whole family of people, the Tanner family who recorded it back in the twenties or maybe early thirties. Um, you know, it's part of that blackface minstrel world. So it's got some like racially derogatory stuff in it. Mary Ruth Moore's version was uh, free of that kind of uh, material. You know, one of the things that I try to do on my records is like cite all my sources and go back and see if there's like earlier versions that, because people always ask me where I find these weird songs. So I figure the easiest way to tell them is to just like print it on the record. <laughs> and, you know, as a, as a folk music geek myself, like growing up, I always liked it like on new lost city ramblers or like pete Seeger's record you actually see like here you can look up this version from 1921 or whatever so i went back and found some other versions like in i think there's a version in vance randolph who was like a folk song collector in the ozarks who'd recorded some versions of it and stuff like that um so anyway yeah i learned that from art rosenbaum and he actually recorded a great um version on his uh, album called Georgia Banjo Blues, which came out in the early 2000s with him and Mary Ruth Moore singing it together and him playing banjo on it, which musically is quite different from the version that I do, but one's not more uh, nonsensical than the other. <laughs> record, we get the hauntingly sparse canyoneers. Come listen and I'll tell a tale of hardy canyoneers, that breed of men, the river rats who live without the fears of common ordinary men. Whose worries sure are small Compared to those who flirt with death Within that high gray wall What's in a man to make him thirst For the kind of life he knows is cursed He'll die a lonely river rat Foolhardy Was written by this guy named Lloyd Klingman, who was a country singer-songwriter, I think kind of like a honky-tonk guy. He made some of these Southwestern-themed records in the 50s. And actually, the first version I heard was by Katie Lee on a Folkways album. Uh, she was like an, an environmentalist, like an activist folk singer. And I just like, loved the melody of it. I thought it was so unusual and the lyrics are really visual and interesting and then i went back and heard his version later i mean he was the guy who'd actually written it 
but yeah, there's not a ton to say about that one other than that's, I really liked the way that the verse melody sort of lingered around in the weird chorus. Um, and I love the way the recording turned out. I think Nathan Gollum's still playing on that track is really beautiful. Sort of a haunting minor key thing, you know, that it didn't have, I don't think, any other minor key songs on this record. That that one definitely is in a minor key. I do remember something about recording. We got like a huge bass drum, and at some point in the chorus, you can kind of hear it come in, like got Nathan Bowles to like hit it with one of those really big soft mallets. So it just kind of comes, like, kind of like rumbles at a couple of points in the song. And I remember that that was kind of fun to do. When I was a lad on the Emerald Isle, I heard many stories, both lovely and wild, about the great dragons and monsters that be that swallow the ships when they sail on the sea. With canvas and paints, I sail with Saint Brennan and his jolly saints. We told the good people goodbye for a while. We sail for Saint Brennan's fair isle, fair isle. We sail for Saint Brennan's fair isle. Through its full band arrangement and Bustle's big expressive voice, the track. St. Brennan's Isle exudes joy and recounts the tall tale of St. Brennan's voyage and the larger-than-life obstacles he and his men encounter along the way. Then St. Brennan walked on the blistering ways and drove all the demons right back to their caves. And all of the saints had a heavenly smile. We sailed for St. Brennan's fair isle, fair isle. We sailed for St. Brennan's fair isle. St. Brennan's Isle came straight from recording of Jimmy Driftwood, who I was listening to a lot before I made this record. Um, you know, Jimmy Driftwood was the guy who wrote Battle of New Orleans. That was his most famous song. He also wrote Tennessee Stud. But it's funny, he was like a high school teacher in the Ozarks of Arkansas. He was more known, I guess, as now as like a songwriter, like a lot of, you know, he had those hits like Johnny Horton doing Battle of New Orleans and all that. Like he was more known as like a a songwriter, I think. And his songs kind of, a lot of them have this like historical bent. I read somewhere that he actually wrote the songs for his high school students so that they could like learn history in a more of a fun way <laughs> and he would perform perform them in his classroom which is crazy to think about being in that class and here in, in 1814 i took a little trip but <laughs> yeah i think he was like a total character there's some uh, footage of him that's pretty great like he played his own homemade guitar and stuff but yeah i think he was like a regional character 
that he um, actually recorded his own solo records like for RCA or something for a time there. I think he was kind of trying to cultivate like a commercial career as a recording artist, performing his own songs. And they're like kind of big production records. And like, uh, I think Chet Atkins was producing or something. So they all have this like you know, a big sound with like backup singers and multiple session musicians. And some of those records are really interesting. Um, and I really love them. Some people don't like him because I think they think he's a little cheesy or something, but um, I really love his records. And a lot of them are, yeah, are these like really interesting, like narrative ballads that are historical or historically themed but yeah, that one was one that was like totally fantastical. Like there's this record called Jimmy Driftwood Sings Tall Tales or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think some of them are like traditional tall tale type songs, like maybe John Henry or, or Paul Bunyan or something like that. But some of them he just made up. <laughs> like They're kind of just crazy. Like uh, And St. Brennan's Fair Isle is definitely one of those. So yeah, it's like this sort of wild like sort of fantasy story about a, a giant fish that an island that becomes a fish of course there's like a you know and there's precedent for those kind of narratives or whatever but yeah he's that's just me being a jimmy driftwood fan is what that song is <laughs> yeah you should go up back and listen to his version of that it's really honestly far superior to mine but uh, there's a little, a little homage to him Drink a white chocolate tea. 
Says I will call in and I will sit down But I haven't got a moment to stay There's one more gal in this whole round town That I love better than thee What in the Natural World ends with the track Low Bonnie, a variant of the traditional Scottish ballad Young Hunting, The song tells the story of a young man's death by the hands of his ex-lover. And much in the way that Billy Button seemed to evoke two seemingly contradictory tones, Lobani seems to work in a similar fashion. The playing is subdued, as if to emphasize the brutal tragedy within the lyrics. It is also lullaby-like, strangely evoking a sense of beauty. This is deepened even further with the addition of ghost-like backing vocals provided by Kentucky singer-songwriter Joan Shelley. So deep. Don't die, don't die, low body, she cried. Don't die, don't die so soon. I'll send for the doctors in this whole round town for one. I met her through her partner, Nathan Salzberg. Nathan is a really extraordinary guitar player who also plays on this record. He plays on a couple of the songs. But, yeah, I've known him for several years. When I was in grad school at Ole Miss, um, I'd reached out to him a couple times because he is the archivist of the Alan Lomax collection. That's what he does for a day job. Um, so I knew him through that world more than I knew him musically. We got to be friends over the years, and he visited me a couple times in Mississippi when I was living there. Also, I had like toured through. He lives in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'd like toured through there with bands and stuff. And I would stay at his place, and we'd hang out and we just really hit it off and have been good friends ever since then. But um, yeah, at some point he had started dating Joan and playing music with her and we got to be friends. Um, and of course, more recently I've, I've toured with her and played bass in her band on this last tour that she did and also opened for her every night. Um, so yeah, we've been good buddies for several years now and um, she's a really extraordinary singer and songwriter um and guitar player but i knew i wanted to have her sing on something on this record i actually initially asked her to sing on a different song i can't remember what it was or something else i wonder and it wound up like for whatever reason like this wound up being the one that i went with i can't remember how that all went down actually (laughs) but anyway uh low bonnie that song pretty faithful to a version recorded by Jimmy Tarleton uh, back around 1930. And Jimmy Tarleton was one half of Darby and Tarleton, this like country music uh, duo from where I'm from, from, from Columbus slash Phoenix City. Their biggest hit was Columbus Stockade Blues in 1927, which has been, you know, since covered by a lot of people. But they 
didn't get along business wise and they went up disbanding and then Jimmy Tarleton made his own solo recordings, which are really beautiful. And that includes the song Low Bonnie, which is really an uh, ancient narrative. I mean, it really, there's a lot of variants of it out there, but probably goes back, you know, several hundred years, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I don't specialize in those sort of really ancient British uh, murder ballad. I, I guess I've been told that murder ballad is actually not the correct term because they're not all about murders, but a lot of them do seem to be extremely violent <laughs> or something violent happens. But uh, I loved Jimmy Tarleton's version of that and knew that I wanted to sing it. This band of country musicians that I'd played with when I was in high school, I played with these two guys, Rick Edwards and Henry Parker, and they had both. Uh, in their youths played and learned from Jimmy Tarleton. Uh, so this was kind of like, in some ways, going back to that uh, Phoenix City thing. Jimmy Tarleton had died before I was born. I never got to see him or anything, but I knew I wanted to do one of his songs, and that was one of the more unusual ones. So yeah, that's where that came from. And then um, I'm really glad that I was able to get Joan to, to sing on it. The decision to title the album What in the Natural World comes after Fussell's realization that many of the songs unintentionally shared common themes. I'm not real heavy on like conceptual records or whatever. I mean, I, I like the idea of a concept record. But as far as like themes go, when you have to title a record, like the way I usually have approached it is like, oh, this is these songs I'm singing. And these are the songs that I like to sing in this era in which I'm making the record. So I'm going to put them together in this it's not like a big heady thing for me usually, you know, like this is this big idea behind this record or a big theme or concept um, initially at least. And then when you start to like see the songs coming together, you're like, Oh wait, there sort of is a theme here. You know, that's, that's the thing that happens. Um, and that definitely happened on that record. And I was like, Oh, this is sort of like a, there's something with wilderness and the environment, something going on with that. And then around that time, I really was like, um, I knew I wanted, if I could, to try to get Roger Brown's paintings on the record, like on the record cover. And uh, I've been looking at those a lot, and those themes are kind of popping out at the same time. And then so, yeah, I, I knew that the record had something to do with the natural world whether i made it happen or not um and then i actually overheard somebody exclaim that in a service station one time what in the natural world uh so i just lifted it from that but um yeah <laughs> somebody somebody put put the natural in there i don't even know who it was it was some i heard somebody say that i wish i knew who it was so i could give them credit <laughs> for the album art Fussell is able to use two paintings by the American artist Roger Brown. Well, I had liked and admired the work of Roger Brown for a long time. He was one of my favorite painters, and um, it's funny, like, he's from the area where I'm from, sort of. I think he grew up in Opelika, Alabama, which is not far from Columbus, just right down the road. And then, of course, he had moved to Chicago at some point and been sort of influential artist in this Chicago imagist scene, which is very interesting, and had lived there, I guess, until uh, maybe the mid-90s or something. I think he passed away in the time period. But um, I liked his 
paintings a lot and I thought it would be great to try to get one of his paintings for the record cover. And I was telling Brendan Greaves that the guy who runs my record label, Brendan's like a big, I'm very fortunate when it comes to, <laughs> to doing the album art. Cause I'm really like sort of persnickety about it. And I, I really enjoy doing that. I'm also kind of picky about it. And uh, I'm lucky because Brendan is a really great designer, but he's also just as knowledgeable about visual art as he is about anything. Um, and he happened to have been like a, a huge fan of Roger Brown's work as well, um, which I wasn't, I wasn't aware of. And so when I told him, I was like, oh, I'd like to get a Roger Brown. I wonder if I could get one of his paintings. And he was like, Oh my God, that'd be amazing. <laughs> uh, he loves that stuff too. So we got both kind of excited about it. And we reached out to um, Lisa Stone, who is one of the people who runs um the Roger Brown study collection, which is based in his, um, his house there in Chicago. It's a really great place. But anyway, um, they had this amazing online archive of like all of his paintings through the years. And you can search through all his, he was also this eccentric kind of collector of uh, visionary art and all sorts of stuff. And um, we both reached out to her and said like, Hey, what are the chances of, us using one of Roger Brown's paintings for this cover, this album. And usually when you reach out to people like that, they have like a big fee. She said, just use whatever you want for free, which was incredible um, and never happens. So that was really great to get her, her blessing on that. And so her only uh, caveat was that I had to mail like several copies of the record to Roger Brown's brother in Alabama. <laughs> so that was a that was a good deal and i've noticed that you know when i have this record like when i tr travel and play gigs and stuff and people are most uh drawn to this album out of all three of my albums like when they people who've never heard my records or whatever they always go to that one because i think the cover is really enticing um and those colors are so nice and i was really um thrilled to be able to use these paintings for this for this record paradise of bachelors releases what in the natural world on march 31st 2017 the album would go on to receive critical praise from multiple publications for which fussell was both surprised and flattered i mean i think with the, anybody's first album it's always a struggle because you're just kind of like they don't really know i mean the first album was also like well embraced but more in like a regional kind of southern way or something i think it was like oxford american and stuff like that um but with the second record it was definitely more international or something um yeah it was great i mean for me at least you know somebody at my level it's not like a big famous person or whatever <laughs> at my little my little level uh it was i mean it really got great press on it it was well reviewed by i know uncut magazine in the in uh, the uk they did like a very uh generous review of it i have noticed that the british people from my records at least and i think a lot of the stuff that comes out sort of in my scene or whatever uh, they're quicker to like review it um well, the other thing that happened was Amanda Petras at the New Yorker put it on her like top 10 records of the year, which was a big deal. You know, people had probably not heard of me before who saw that. Um, that was probably 
very i mean for me like very i was like what (laughs) um but yeah that was a nice thing to see so yeah it was very well received and it's um yeah that was nice to nice to see it's always like a you're so embracing yourself for like a bad review you know (laughs) jake xerxes fussell's early exposure to folk culture has led to a lifelong appreciation of its richness and value. And it is through his depth of knowledge, as well as his immense talent, that he was able to create a seemingly timeless record. And though he feels somewhat removed from what in the natural world, Fussell is still appreciative of what he was able to accomplish. It's just weird to like put a record out, because like you work on it for so long, and... But then, like, also, by the time you're done with it, you don't want to hear it again. Like, at least for me, like, I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm sick of this thing. Um, and it always takes me a while to come back to it. Like, I don't I don't ever listen to my albums, you know, unless I have to, to, like, reference something. And then, but I have heard bits and pieces of this, like, you know, somebody will put it on a mix or something, and I'll hear it. And, um, yeah, I'm like, I'm generally proud of it i think because i can hear it with some distance now and i'm like oh that's cool how we did that i forgot we did that thing i am happy with it i do feel closer to some of these songs because i play them a lot still like jump for joy and that peaches song and billy button i play those quite a bit like canyon ears and um saint brendan's fair isle i don't play so much anymore but i still love those like it kind of reminds me that i need to go back and work on some of these things (laughs) you know it's just funny how like certain songs it's not that any of those are better than the others or whatever necessarily but um i don't really view it that way but it's more like some things when you're playing live tend to stick in your set list i don't know they just go over well or they're easy to put into the set list because they you know tempo wise or the way that the flow of the night works it works better with an audience or something and so i haven't you know touched on some of these songs in a few years and it's kind of funny how that becomes with a record such a crystallized thing you're like oh this is this thing that i did and don't ever think about that too much anymore but yeah overall i really i like this record like I said, I don't listen to my own stuff. I mean, that's the iron, irony, I guess. It's, that's the weird thing of being somebody who puts out records. Like you, you have this whole thing that you're known for, but then like what you're thinking about stuff that you're doing in the future as a, you know, as an artist or whatever, or as a musician, like you're thinking about the next thing. You're not really thinking, looking back and thinking about what you did three years ago so much. Um and you're also thinking about other people's records who you really like and that you want your records to sound like that. You're not, you know, so looking back on your own stuff is fun. And generally, I like, I'm definitely glad I did it and I'm proud of it. But um, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to Jake Xerxes Fussell for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy What in the Natural World and more from Fussell at jakexerxesfussell.bandcamp.com various streaming platforms and paradiseofbachelors.com 
Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.